Hey everybody, and welcome to the extra exciting and especially excellent 8th episode of Superman and Batman, a podcast dedicated to not only the overuse of alliteration, but to celebrating nearly 7 decades of the world's finest team by looking at Superman and Batman stories from throughout the years. Last episode, we were hip-deep in the Bronze Age when we looked at a story from World's Finest Comics number 254. This time, The Wheel of Fate, which should not be confused with the far less comic booky Wheel of Fortune, has sent us on a long, long journey, propelling us all the way back to issue 248, published exactly one year prior to last episode's issue. And it's strange that in the earliest episodes, we were bouncing back and forth to widely different eras. And now, when it finally leaves us in the same era for two episodes, it really leaves us in the same era. But that's part of the fun of randomness, and thankfully, this is a better story than last episode. Kind of. Uh, But before we get into that, I want to acknowledge a little something special. If everything goes to plan, this episode is being released in the final week of February. And February 28th, 2014 marks the 69th anniversary of the first part of a Superman radio serial storyline titled The Mystery of the Wax Men. Now, why is The Mystery of the Wax Men important to this show? Because that arc featured, for the very first time in any medium, a teaming of Superman and Batman. The two characters previously had appeared together on covers, of course, and they both appeared in the same story of the Justice Society of America feature in two issues of All-Star Comics. But for a true pairing, a true team-up between Superman and Batman, this was the very first time that happened. The story is believed to have run in 12 parts, from February 28th to March 15th, 1945, and is believed to have starred Stacey Harris as Batman, alongside Ronald Liss as Robin, and of course Clayton Bud Collier as Superman. And I'm saying believed because this arc falls during a stretch when there are very few episodes of the radio serial known to still exist. Only parts 2 and 3 of the storyline have surfaced, unfortunately neither of which feature Batman. But Robin appears in both and interacts with Superman, as the two heroes discuss the plight of Batman, who has gone missing, which is kind of what drives the the whole storyline. But regardless of whether or not the episodes exist, it was definitely a historic moment, and clearly a big hit with listeners at the time, because Batman and Robin were brought back numerous times afterwards in several storylines, I think all of which are still available in their entirety. Keep an eye on the feed later in the week, and I might upload the two existing episodes of The Mystery of the Wax Men. Like I said, it's not a complete story, but by and large, the Superman radio serial is awesome and can be enjoyed whether it's complete or not. Uh, But right now, we've got to turn our attention to the main focus of this episode, which is World's Finest Comics number 248, which, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, was released on September 19th, 1977, with a December 1977, January 1978 cover date. It has a whopping 80 pages of action for the cover price of $1. And between this and last episode, we've got a pretty good example of just how quickly the dollar comics era tanked. 
Um, for World's Finest Comics, the dollar issue started with issue 244. But by issue 254, which was 10 issues and just a bit more than a year and a half later, they'd already trimmed the page count by 20%. But here we have 80 pages, so let's get into it. Our cover is by the dynamic artist duo of Jose Luis Garcia Lopez and Dick Giordano. And as you might expect with that pair, it's a really awesome cover. It shows Superman grabbing what looks to be Bruce Wayne and screaming, You! You've murdered Batman! You can't be Bruce Wayne! And with his free hand, Superman is pointing at what looks to be Batman, except the figure is melting. I mean, his face is oozing down and his body is turning to sludge. It's just a really great image and, and has the makings for a really creepy cover. Turning inside, our 20-page story is titled The Lurkers. And credits are Story, Bob Haney Pencils, Kurt Schaffenberger Inks, Tex Blaisdell Coloring, Jerry Serpe Lettering, Ben Oda And editing, Jack C. Harris Stop! Look behind you! That familiar face, those eyes reflected in your own frightened orbs, those footsteps that stopped when yours did. You'd better be scared, because even the great Superman and Batman feel fear's cold grip when over their shoulders they sense the lurkers. Our story begins with Part 1, Day of Madness, as Bruce Wayne dines in Paris with a business associate named Duloc. But he finds Duloc acting very much out of character, unwilling to sell a rare metal to the United States, despite the harm that it will cause the country. Afterwards, Bruce attends a medical convention, where a professor is unveiling a new miracle drug. But Bruce is further shocked when the professor, who always before had been a great humanitarian, announces the drug will only be used on those that he deems worthy. As Superman, who was also at the conference for no discernible reason, protects the professor from the angry mob, Bruce just leaves, wondering what could have come over the professor. As Bruce's taxi nears the American embassy, he spots a sniper with a rifle trained on the U.S. ambassador. Leaping into action as the Batman, he knocks the gun from the sniper's hand. Despite being then punched in the gut, hit in the head by a clay pot, and kicked off the roof, Batman is able to subdue the gunman, who we learn is the notorious international terrorist Esteban. Batman takes Esteban to jail, and once alone, we learn that Batman was grazed by the sniper's bullet and is wounded. Soon emerging from the subway tunnel is Bruce Wayne. He tries to seek medical help, but his injuries prove too severe, and Bruce starts to pass out. Thankfully, Superman just happened to be nearby and flies his friend across the ocean and back to Gotham City, where he can be patched up by the ever-trusty Alfred Pennyworth. The butler begins his work, but Superman is surprised when Alfred scratches Bruce. Superman dismisses it as Alfred just getting old and is soon distracted by the much more pressing matter of a bomb threat. Superman flies out, surveying the area with his X-ray vision, soon spotting the bomb in an elevator shaft and the bomber waiting to detonate it. Part 2, Night of Wrath. With just seconds to go, Superman breaks through the side of the shaft, grabbing the bomb at just the moment of detonation, muffling the explosion with his body, and thereby saving all the innocent bystanders in the elevator car. He then goes after the bomber, and is very surprised when he discovers the bomber is... Esteban. But how can this be? Esteban is locked up in a Paris jail cell. 
So after reuniting with Batman and making a phone call, the, mis- the mystery deepens as they realize that not only is Esteban still locked up in Paris, but that both Estebans have the exact same fingerprints. Hoping for some explanation, or maybe just a rerun of good times, Batman turns on the TV and is only more confused when he sees a senator, who also happens to be a good friend of his, pledging to vote against a human rights bill. And then hears a report that Princess Portia of Moldacia has ordered her armies to invade the neighboring San Carlos. The thing is, Princess Portia is actually Julie Madison, former fiancé of Bruce Wayne. And yes, I said former fiancé. A character who hadn't been seen since all the way back in Detective Comics number 49, back in 1941. It seems in the intervening three decades, though, Julie's been rather busy, having married the king of Moldacia, who later died, leaving Julie as monarch. Why she's still calling herself princess, if that's the case, I don't really know, but Batman doesn't have time to worry about it either, what with everyone going crazy and only half the story remaining to figure it out. Plus, all the excitement has just gotten way too much for Bruce, who starts feeling weak. Being a great friend, Superman leaves Bruce in Alfred's hands and flies back to Metropolis, assuming his guise as Clark Kent, mild-mannered TV newsman, and reporting about the Gotham bombing on that night's news. Clark's broadcast draws unexpected and rave reviews from Clark's boss, Morgan Edge. Meanwhile, back in Gotham, Bruce gets a call from the Secretary General of the UN, pleading with him to use his personal connection to Princess Portia, aka Julie Madison, to convince her to call off the invasion. Shortly, the two former lovers meet. Julie brushes aside Bruce's pleas, instead preferring to get a little more... personal. Their lips soon connect in a kiss, which ends with Bruce falling to the floor, unconscious. Julie is then joined by someone who looks exactly like Bruce, and the two laugh over a job well done. Later, the Bruce double assumes the guise of Batman and joins Superman at Gotham's police headquarters, where Commissioner Gordon tells him that he's received word that Esteban has vanished from his jail cell in Paris. Suddenly, a blood-curdling scream echoes from the Gotham Esteban cell. As the three rush to where he's being held, they see Esteban dissolving, soon leaving nothing more than a puddle of goo. The pseudo-Batman says it must all be a joke, but Superman is sure that it has something to do with all the craziness that's gone on through the entire issue. And between you and me, let's hope Superman's right on this one, or this story's going to go south really, really fast. But anyway, the two bicker a bit, with the bad imposter trying to rationalize the events of the issue, and Superman finally asking Batman how he's feeling, in reference to his injuries from earlier in the story. The fake knight says he's feeling great, but an x-ray scan from Superman reveals that he was never really injured at all. Superman then realizes that this Batman must be a duplicate of the real thing, much like the fake Estebans, and begins to put together the pieces that the other folks, Morgan Edge, Julie Madison, the Senator, the Professor, etc., also must be duplicates. The two soon go their separate ways, but Superman doubles back, knocking out the pseudo-Batman and imprisoning him in the Fortress of Solitude before taking to the airwaves as Clark Kent to report on what he calls, quote, a worldwide conspiracy to take over people in key positions of power and influence. Having laid the bait for his trap, he then eavesdrops outside Morgan Edge's office 
where he overhears Edge on the phone telling the other party that to get out of the mess that Clark has caused, they must now clone Clark Kent. And try saying that three times fast. Clone Clark Kent. Anyway. Part 3, Dawn of Destiny, begins with Clark coming to the realization that the only way to get to the bottom of things is to allow himself to be knocked out when Edge hits him on the back of the head with a lamp. Clark is soon loaded into a jet and taken to a towering fortress in the North African desert. He's taken before a trio of elders who, for no reason in particular, tell him that they are the Dalcidi, a group of people poor and despised for centuries. That is, however, until they discovered their ancestors have had perfected the art of cloning and decided to use that to become feared and powerful. Clark is then led past the cloning chambers and to a row of jail cells where all the people that they've replaced are being held. Well, all except for Bruce Wayne, who has escaped and is currently kicking Bat-Butt and taking Bat-Names as the one and only Batman. But, holy short-lived rebellion, gentle listener, because Batman soon is met with a new challenge. His own clone. Equal to him in every way. Batman and the caped counterfeiter engage in fierce hand-to-hand combat, but the one true Dark Knight finally gets the upper hand when his duplicate inexplicably turns into a pile of goo. However, the fight is not over, as Batman is bum-rushed by four armed guards. Realizing he must help his friend, Clark takes one giant breath, sucking all the oxygen from the cell and knocking out his cellmates. He then busts through the cell wall, George Reeves-style, and knocks out all four guards with one punch, leaving Batman with nothing more to do than say, I would have thrown a batarang at him. But Superman soon is confronted with another challenge, when he comes face-to-face and head-to-head with his very own clone. Unfortunately, it's all kind of anticlimactic, though, because Superman just punches him once and he turns into a big pile of flying goo. Superman then reveals that... Okay, I'm just going to read Superman's explanation. Batman says, He turned blob! Because apparently grammar isn't Batman's strong suit. Anyway, he says, he turned blob. The impact must have speeded up his clone time clock. And Superman replies, he wasn't really a super clone of myself. The cells I first detached from my skin, then pasted back and allowed the clone edge to steal, were first irradiated with superpower-destroying kryptonite in my fortress. So, apparently, in between overhearing the phone call and entering Edge's office which all happened, as far as we saw, in the space of two panels, Clark switched to Superman, flew back to the fortress, ripped off some of his skin, irradiated it with kryptonite, pasted that skin back on himself, which is all kind of gross when you think about it, and in the meantime, somehow avoided being affected himself by the kryptonite, and then flew back to Metropolis and switched to Clark Kent. And he would have gotten away with it, too, if it hadn't been for you meddling kids. Or something. So anyway, their plan defeated. The Dalcidi leader bows before Superman and Batman. The heroes are like, eh, it's cool, you know. And they say they'll help the Dalcidi shed their image, their, their bad image, so long as they promise to knock it off with the whole, you know, cloning world leaders and random TV newsmen for no reason in an effort to take over the whole world thing. They then assemble a giant sky sled 
from parts in the laboratory and fly all the captives back to their rightful place. And on the way, and on the way home to the United States, we learned that Superman and Batman exposed the Dalcidi to amnesium in order to protect their secret identities, and therefore also destroying the cloning process, despite it being invaluable to the world at large, but they don't really go into that because this is, of course, the end. I got a real Adventures of Superman vibe there at the end. And when I say that, I mean I could almost hear the Adventures of Superman theme playing in the background as Superman tows a huge air skiff full of people back to the passenger's home. It it just feels like something... It feels very much like something that might have happened on that show. if, If they had the budget, of course. And even the rest of the story more or less, feels like something they could have adapted for that show. Um, Batman wouldn't have been involved, obviously, although having Batman on the adventures of Superman would have been really cool. I wonder who would have played him. Because Adam West would have been too young, and I don't think Adam West's campy style would have really fit in with that show. Hmm. Write in your casting recommendations for Batman circa, you know, 1955. That, that could be really interesting. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, Batman would have had to been taken out of this story, but really, Batman's part in the story could have been swapped out with pretty much any hero, or, or for that matter, you know, with just a few tweaks, a civilian character like Jimmy Olsen or, or even Lois Lane. And as much as me comparing it to Adventures of Superman is a compliment, and it really is a compliment. For this story, it, it also serves as one of my biggest criticisms. Because this story was published in 1977. And I shouldn't feel like I'm watching a television show from the 50s when I read a comic from the late 70s. Or at least I don't feel like I should. There should be a, a deeper, more mature type of storytelling. And that doesn't mean it can't be fun. That doesn't mean... It has to be, you know, covered with blood and gore and sex and nudity. Those things don't make a story more mature. It it, it just needs to be... I, I expect it to be more developed, a more developed story, and characters to be more well thought out in their motivations. Um, another thing that let me down here is that the cover and the opening splash led me to believe I was getting a much different story tonally than what the issue was. I mean, just look at this cover. Batman is melting, Superman's grabbing Bruce Wayne and screaming that he can't be the real Bruce. You open to the splash and we see a big spooky mansion with this opening text that I read earlier and and an eerie title like The Lurkers. It, it It led me to think I was getting maybe not a horror, a straight up horror story, but something with a significantly uh, uh, more horror-like tone than what it is. And really, I I think my beefs with the story, 90% of them lie with the third act. Because until then, we did have a nice little story with a good mystery, but then we got to the third act and it just kind of went all Silver Age on us. Uh, We're introduced to the villains of the piece, which is a lost tribe of people who have inexplicable access to you know this unbelievably advanced technology that 
even modern science, even our you know real world, quote unquote real world, modern science here in 2014 has yet to come nowhere close to replicating. There's the stuff with Clark detaching his own skin and exposing it to kryptonite and then reattaching it, which, as I said, is just gross. Um, the, the fights at the end are, are very short, and in the case of Superman versus Superclone, you know, very anticlimactic. And I, I know I'm repeating myself, but th- there just needs to be more to it. Um, it, it, it feels very rushed and very simplistic. Um, but all that said, I did enjoy this one. It had a nice mystery and it kept me entertained. It does fall apart in the third act, but that uh, all that goes back to what I said earlier about it feeling like a story from the Silver Age rather than halfway into the Bronze Age. But I did enjoy this one for the most part, uh, particularly the first two chapters. And the third is more enjoyable if I ignore the fact that by this time storytelling should be a lot more um, evolved. I, I, don't, I don't really like that word because it, it has other connotations, but uh, you know, it, it just needs to be a, a better... It just needs to be a more nuanced story or a more layered story. I'm not, I'm not even sure really what word I want to use here to describe it, but um, I, I think I kind of you know detailed that better using more words earlier. Um, another part of what might be leading me to liken this to a Silver Age story is the art, which was penciled by Kurt Schaffenberger. Um, now, I like Schaffenberger, but to me, his, his work is synonymous with Silver Age stories. Uh, particularly Lois Lane, which is all he drew for DC for about a decade. He then moved over to Supergirl for a few years before actually being fired in 1970, and it wasn't until he was rehired a couple years later that he started doing um, other stories. But but even then, he spent a couple years doing only Jimmy Olsen stories before you know branching out to occasional non-Superman characters. So. So his art is just very much a part of the Silver Age to me. And, you know, just my opinion, he doesn't really have a great handle on Batman. Um, to be fair, he'd only drawn the character a couple of times before this, and the distance shots actually do look pretty good. Um, Schaffenberger was surprisingly good at action and, and has some dynamic shots in this, but the, the up-close ones, at times, Batman just looks a little wonky. And his Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne look way too similar for my tastes. Uh, I've talked in previous episodes how I think the two characters should look different, and here they they're just way too similar. Um, but all that said, the the art is pretty good. I mean, it, it's Kurt Schaffenberger. Come on, it's just stylistically it it resembles something more like I would expect from the Silver Age rather than the Bronze Age. Um, oh, and one more thing. While I appreciate the inclusion of Julie Madison and give Haney a lot of credit for reaching way, way back to pull out a character who hadn't been seen for about two and a half decades, and and believe me, I want to stress how much I appreciate her inclusion, I don't really get the point of it. It comes out of nowhere, and there's really no resolution to it. Um, I, I just don't understand pulling a character like that for what basically amounts to a glorified name check. As someone who likes the Golden Age Batman, especially those first couple years, which 
are the only issues where Julie appeared. I really did like seeing her, even if she was kind of turned into a, a Grace Kelly homage. But her use in the story just seemed kind of random and, and kind of pointless. Um, but that's really all I have to say about it. Once again, I feel like I was being very negative about the story, but you know, at the end of the day, it it was entertaining and I did enjoy it. So, you know, kind of fifty fifty, I guess. Again, uh, but right now we're gonna take a break, play a couple promos for a couple excellent podcasts that I highly recommend you listen to, and then we'll be back for the second segment of the show. I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am back. You need to take the trash out. Hey, I'm trying to make a trailer for a podcast. Oh, you mean Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast? Why, yes, that is what I mean. The show where you and I discuss all things geeky. Comics, TV, movies, books, you name it. Well, are you going to tell them that you can find the show at www.supermatescomic.blogspot.com? Well, I think you kind of already did. And that new shows will be posted bi-weekly every two weeks? I was, but you just kind of did that, too. Well, see, now you can go take out the trash. Great. So join us, Cindy. And Chris. Franklin, for the Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast, at supermatescomic.blogspot.com. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us. I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. For soon, the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And half mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. The Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next Victim. You athletes can't change the way I can. Got me dying to those powerful cousins of the earth. I've been expecting you, for I am the thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatots, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. Fool, you're just a muscular freak. Blind or hope. Stop! You must not end on the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain until it has been drained of all elemental life. So speak, Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witness the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. ffcast.libsyn.com As with far too many Bronze Age tales, this story, say it with me, has not been reprinted. But there are other features, 
which sadly also have not been reprinted. So let's take a look at those. When you open up the book, you get a great table of contents page promoting all the, uh, all the features in the book. And, and it also plugs this issue as, quote, special all-supervillain issue, which is weird because, you know, usually every issue is full of villains, and I wouldn't really consider the villains in the Superman-Batman story to be supervillains. I mean, it's not like they're fighting the Joker or you know, Parasite or, or somebody, but okay. Um, the Superman-Batman story is next, and that's followed by a 20-page Green Arrow Black Canary story titled Helgramite is His Name, Rebirth is His Game. And that's by Jerry Conway, Trevor Von Eden, and Vince Coletta, and features Green Arrow and Black Canary battling the Helgramite, which should be pretty obvious from the title of the story. Um, I'm most familiar with the post-crisis version of Helgramite uh, from his appearances in the Superman titles in the early 90s. Unless I'm mistaken, this is his uh, this is the character's second appearance. Um, he made his first appearance in a Batman Creeper story written by Bob Haney over in Batman the Brave and the Bold about a decade before this story was published. Uh, but next up is an eight-page vigilante story titled All the Dummies Men by Bill Kunkel, Gray Morrow, and Vincente Alcazar. And the last story in the book is The Amazon and the Rock, a 15-page Wonder Woman story by Jerry Conway, Mike Vosberg, and Dick Giordano, which features the Earth-2 Wonder Woman battling Nazis alongside Sergeant Rock during World War II. And that seems very, very cool. So I'm going to have to go back at some point and, and read that story. Um, the issue also has a handful of ads, including our very first, for this podcast anyway, Hostess Fruit Pie ad. Uh, this one featuring the penguin and the cuckoo cuckoos. And sorry, but I'm not going to reenact this. But I will remind you that you get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Fruit Pies. Coincidentally, you also get a big delight in every bite of Superman and Batman. But I don't recommend trying to eat the podcast because that would just be awkward. Um, we've also got the Comics Classic ad for Sea Monkeys, a hodgepodge ad, and an ad for BB Guns, which shows <laughs> it shows the kids shooting the gun in the house while the mom watches in glee from the couch. Don't try this at home, kids. And there are various other ads for comics, candy, and, and worthless junk. Just your basic comic book ads from 1977. Toward the end of the book, we've got the Daily Planet, which is another of DC's many advertorial pages from throughout the years. Though, I think the Daily Planet run is more fondly remembered, uh, I think, than the others. And this must be nearing the end of the Daily Planet page, though, because as we saw by the time uh, 254 runs around, rolls around, it's been rebranded. And, you know, I just recorded that episode and I can't even recall what it was being called at that point. But it doesn't matter because you all listened to last episode, right? Yeah, I'm sure you did. Um, but last but not least, there's a letters page from the world's finest fans, which eschews letters from readers in lieu of what is kind of a weird letter uh, from the editor, Jaxie Harris, 
addressing fans and saying that they want more original letters um, in response to what's being presented in the book. He says the majority of what they've been getting has been, you know, far too long to print or, or had nothing but gushing praise and offers a challenge to readers saying they want more original and interesting letters or letter hacks writing in. And it's just kind of a weird thing to print, and I would love to know what inspired it. I mean, were they actually not getting any feedback, or was it all negative, or was it really, as the letter says, all you know, long-winded rambles and, and gushing but not really constructive praise? i, I just really like to know. Uh, but what we do know, though, is at least one reader took them up on their challenge. I mentioned last episode that issue 254 featured a letter from Mark Wade. What I didn't mention was that his letter was a direct response to this challenge. And I'm just going to read the letter that he wrote as well as uh, Jack C. Harris's response. And I'm not sure why I keep calling him Jack C. Harris rather than just Harris or, you know, even Jack. But either way, right now I'm just kind of vamping for time while I pull out the comic. But thankfully, I have it now in my cold hands, as you can hear in the microphone. So I'm just going to read Mark's letter and the response. Mark writes, Dear Editor, It's a snowbound day in my city, and a good opportunity to answer your challenge issued in World's Finest Comics number 248, Asking for Good Letters. I'm not here to comment on any particular story, for that is not what I'm concerned about at the moment. I don't wish to know about a particular issue of World's Finest Comics. Rather, I want to know about the mag in general. Mr. Harris, where is this comic going? Although the recent Reality War issue was excellent, that format is the exception rather than the rule. It's been said over and over that dollar comics are a bargain, but all that's cited but all that's cited then are comparisons to the 35 censors. I fully believe that World's Finest Comics is worth my dollar. What I want to believe is that it is a bargain worth more than my dollar. Face it, fandom. What you normally see in World's Finest Comics is material that could just as easily be printed in a 35-cent comic with a page or two cut. But what needs to be seen is something different, i.e. longer stories. In the last 20 years, the normal comic story has decreased in size by one-third. This becomes painfully obvious, too, when one rereads those past epics. Please take time and space in our letters column to tell us something about the future direction of World's Finest Comics. Mark Wade. And then it gives his address, which I'm not going to read because, well, I don't, I don't think he lives there anymore, but it's just rude. But anyway, uh, Harris responds, We believe any editorial policy statement would be out of place for this page. The book is an editorial statement by itself. We will be experimenting with varying page lengths and crossover stories, but to say more would indeed be a waste of space. Period. Kind of a terse response, given that Harris issued a direct challenge for readers to think outside the box in their letters. And this is long before Mark Waite entered the comics field as either a writer or an editor. And I would... I've sometimes thought that I would love to talk to letter hacks that later entered the field, revisit the letters they wrote, and see if, not only if they still feel the same about a particular issue or whatever, but also if knowing what they know now and and having dealt with fans, if they would have written a letter differently 
or approach the subject matter from a different angle. And that's not to say that uh, Mark Wade has a valid point in the letter or a non-valid one. It would just be interesting now that Wade's been an editor and, and a writer and has probably had fans pose this exact question to him, you know, how does he feel about that and, and does it change his perspective at all? Um, but moving on, let's head on over to Mike's Amazing World of Comics at mikesamazingworld.com and jump into the time machine. There are a lot of books from DC this month, um, 32 to be exact, but I just don't have much to say about the selection. Uh, Batman 294 has a really eye-catching cover uh, by Jim Oparo. The story inside is the final part of a uh, four- or five-part storyline titled The Strange Death of Batman, or, or something to that effect. Both Superman and Lex Luthor play a role in that arc, and I've never read it, but someone suggested that it would make a decent story for coverage here. So, you know, even though it's, it's really a Batman story with a Superman appearance, one of these days I might check that out and, and give it a little coverage in an episode or two. Uh, the Flash, number 256, has a nice Rich Buckler cover. The pre-rapey Dr. Knight challenges the Justice League in issue 149 of that title. Uh, Jack Kirby's been gone from DC for about a year, I think, at this point. But his titles and characters continue under other creators. We've got Commandy, The New Gods, and, of course, Mr. Miracle. Um, Secret Society of Supervillains, number 11. You know, I've, I've never read this series. I have a trade that collects the first nine or ten issues, I think. Um, so I'll dive into it at some point. But I've heard a lot of good things about this series. Um, I know that Shag over at the Fire and Water podcast gave it a lot of love in a couple episodes last year. Um, and I've heard other podcasters and bloggers and, and you know internet people mention it. So I'm actually kind of looking forward to reading this at, at some point. Uh, but that's really all I have. Uh, a lot of books, just not a lot to mention as, as far as comments from me. Um, so I guess that's it. Uh, be sure to come back next time for more Superman and Batman goodness. Next episode, we're going to be doing something a little bit different as we'll be stepping outside the pages of World's Finest Comics for, well, not the first time, but the first time since the premiere. And I'll explain why that is next episode. But whatever we cover, you know it will have Superman, and you know it will have Batman. And that means it will be awesome. So until then, have a great one, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. listening to Superman and Batman, hosted by me, Michael Bradley. Feedback can be sent to michael at greatcrypton.com. I love hearing from listeners, so be sure to send your comments, questions, and other feedback, and I will likely read that on a future episode. Show notes, information, and back episodes can be found at greatcrypton.com. Be sure to follow the show via Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe via iTunes or RSS feed 
so that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe via iTunes, be sure to leave a review. Not only does it help others find the show, but I'd love to read that in a future episode as well. Superman and Batman is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, home to many great Superman-related podcasts. Be sure to pay them a visit at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Batman was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, and both characters are copyright DC Comics. For more about Superman's creators, be sure to visit my blog, Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers, at greatcrypton.com slash Schuster, where I commemorate the lives, works, and legacies of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. I want to thank you again very much for listening and invite you to come back next time for another episode of Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. music was Ian Hunter's Seeing Double from his 1983 album All of the Good Ones Are Taken. If you'd like to get this song or the album, the best way to do that is to head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com banner. Pick up a CD, digital download, or pretty much anything else your heart desires, and Two True Freaks will get a little cut from every purchase. It won't cost you anything extra, but does help ensure a steady stream of fine Two True Freaks-related podcasts. From Television City in Hollywood. You can't temporarily lay off the